1: And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. So I want to start right out of the gate with something. I mean, I just I just woke up, checked Twitter to see if anything on there, and immediately got annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> and while it's fresh in my head, let's just do this. And I've, I've talked about it yesterday. Talked about it many times in the past. I'm sure I'll talk about it many times in the future. But I want to definitively um, put my foot down on this one. The um, the notion that there are things the Packers will not do to me is just stupid. Um. And and <laughs> let me let me narrow in a little bit because it's a little too broad specifically the one that's driving me crazy is the Packers refuse to take wide receivers in the first round. The Packers don't draft wide receivers in the first round. Why do you keep saying that? Why are you saying that? Well, because they haven't. Look, man, how many first-round picks have there been? Not very many. How many times um, has wide receiver been a major need for the Packers? I know from the fan base it's a lot but we've had the number one wide receiver in football many times over the course of these many years for a long time. It was Devontae. I mean, well, I shouldn't say for a long time, but for what two years, two solid years. And then beyond that, he was a top 10 for another two to three years. And then beyond all that, how many times did they, were they willing to take a wide receiver, but there wasn't one available. I, I, let me venture a guess every single year. If there was ever a year that they felt that there was an elite, elite wide receiver that fell into their lap and there was nobody else that compared to this wide receiver, they would have drafted that wide receiver. But you know what? That doesn't usually happen because if there's an elite, elite wide receiver, somebody else is going to take them. So the only time that would happen is if the Packers are the only team, aside from whatever teams are left behind them, that feel that way. And as I've said... The NFL massively overvalues wide receiver, or, or if you don't want to say massively overinfl- uh, overvalues, just, let's just say that they regard extremely highly. And so, for example, to say that they would refuse to draft wide receivers in the first round is stupid, considering we know for a fact that they wanted to draft wide receivers in the first round last year. They said so publicly. They came right out and said that there were five guys that they were willing to draft, and all of them were gone. And I know many fans and media members are like, well, you should have just traded everything to go up and get them, which would have been stupid because we would have lost what? You want to lose both Quay and Wyatt and Christian Watson because we wouldn't have drafted him if we had traded up for a wide receiver. So you want to lose Quay and Wyatt and then draft two other guys in the second round so that we could get what? Jahan Dotson? Traylon Burks? I don't know if we could have gotten Jamison Williams. He went at 12. Eh, maybe we could have. We probably, if, we, if we trade two firsts, but he didn't even play all year. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson went before them. Drake London went at eight. But you know what? That's beside the point anyways. Because the fact of the matter is, they wanted to. You can't just manifest things. This isn't, you know, Aaron Rodgers' magical wor- world of words bring l- reality where you can just speak it into existence. And I know that's a common thing well beyond Aaron Rodgers, but sorry to break your heart, it's not a thing that actually happens. At least in terms of physically manifesting a wide receiver to appear that is worthy of a first-round pick when you're picking. We know that they wanted Justin Jefferson. He was out of reach. So why do we continue to say that they they refuse to draft wide receivers in the first round? We know because they've told us that they were willing to do it over and over and over, and the wide receivers just keep getting pulled out from underneath them because teams are trading way up in front of them. The Vikings were already in front of them and then traded up to get Justin Jefferson. They're very, very, very willing to get a wide receiver. The question is, it comes down to priority, because again, if you look at the tiers... The fact that the Packers are not just going to have one player at the top of their board when their pick comes up every time, they're going to have several in a group, and they're going to pick from that group. And the question then becomes, what is the biggest priority from among that group? So it's not like, well, then no, we know that they're just going to take either a safety or a defensive tackle. No, you don't. Because if the, the best three players are tight end, wide receiver, and offensive tackle, they're not taking a safety. They might trade back. Or or let's just say it's only uh, two wide receivers and a tight end. They could either trade back or they're taking one of those. There is no rule. There never has been, ever, a rule for the Green Bay Packers that says, do not draft first-round wide receivers. That's stupid. Everybody should know that. That should be very clear and obvious that the Packers do not have a rule, just like they never had a rule about old players, just like they never had a rule about first-round linebackers. Just like in reality, they never actually had a rule about you know, I don't want to say there's no rule about height because I'm sure there's at some point you know, you could be I don't I don't know because it always comes down to the player. You know, what if he's 4 feet? You're right. But what if that 4-foot guy could run 429 he could jump out of the stadium. He could bench a Mack truck. I mean, since we're playing, what if? Is it really the height? Or is the height just a reflection of what we believe a person is or isn't able to do? Offensive tackles. Every single year, the most tired thing you'll ever hear in terms of draft narrative is offensive tackles with short arms. I don't know why we keep talking about it. Every year, there's examples of guys that that have short arms that we say they they'll never be able to play tackle. And then they play tackle, and they're fine. David Bakhtiari is one of them. Part of the reason he fell, or maybe the entire reason, I don't know, um, but a big part of the reason he fell is because his arm length wasn't long enough. And he has been one of the top offensive tackles for many, many years, and there's plenty of examples of that. And we're going to do it every single time, every single year. His arms aren't long enough to be an offensive tackle, blah, blah, blah. Now, it's true. It's harder to be an offensive tackle when you don't have X, Y, Z arms. But if you have a definitive rule that says, anyone with shorter arms than this will not be on my board, I'm sorry, that's kind of stupid. Because at the end of the day, it always comes down to function. What are you able to do? And I think that's true for almost every single team, which is why there are general rules and there are, of course, exceptions to that rule. So the only thing that matters for the Green Bay Packers is when they are up and ready to draft... Is the best option available in the draft a wide receiver? If the answer is yes, they will draft a wide receiver. That's true of every single position. What about punter? It is true of punter, but it's just never going to be true that the best option is a wide receiver or a a punter. I mean, let's be completely honest. The fact that they traded up to uh, two picks from the first round at pick 34 to get Watson, it's basically a first-round pick anyways, and we're still going to make comments like, oh, you know, the Packers, I don't really draft-wide receivers. Drafted three last year, for crying out loud. It's just the narrative that will never die, no matter what. And the only reason why this is getting so much more play now is because the narrative was much more heavy that they refused to get Aaron Rodgers' help. And now that they went out and got him a bunch of help, got him a new running back, retooled the offensive line, got him three wide receivers in this draft, one of them seems like a budding superstar, now we have to kind of just pull away from that but we're going to still kind of say the same thing we just can't say with quite as much punch Uh, we're going to say he doesn't draft first round wide receivers as though that means anything i don't care when they're drafted i want you to go get me good players he invested heavily in wide receiver and found good players well he wasn't in the first round so what Corey davis went at pick five he's not good (laughs) how about john ross who went at nine that same year, you had three wide receivers go in the top 10. The only one that's even decent is Mike Williams. And he, even he has never even been the number one guy on his team the entire time that he's been there. He's just a real solid number two, is all he's ever been. At pick seven, it's not about the round, it's about can you find value in the draft? He did. He found a lot of value at the position of wide receiver. But in terms of will, Guttekunst and the Green Bay Packers draft a wide receiver, or will they have some kind of aversion because they don't like the position? That is such a stupid narrative. It is so stupid. And it's true of any other narrative. They won't draft a tight end. Why? Now, it's, it's true they might not, but that's true of all 32 teams. How much do they value tight end? That's why, you know, Bijan Robinson is one of the three best players in this draft. Is he going to go top three? No. Why? Position. Running back isn't valued as highly. Same with tight end. Now, I don't think Michael Mayer is Bijan, which is why I don't really understand why he would be quite so high, but I could just be wrong about Michael Mayer. But the position isn't seen quite as high. And so the, the point may be we could take Michael Mayer because he's the best tight end in the draft. But there's not that much of a drop-off between him and the guy that I can get in the second round, and not much of a drop-off between him and the guy I can get in the third round. So from a strategic standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But would they? Of course. If they felt that he was a dominant player and was a good value at this spot right here and would be a a great benefit to the team, yes, they will pull the trigger on Michael Mayer and they will draft him. And the annoying thing is, if, if we do draft a wide receiver in the first round, which is entirely likely largely based on where we're sitting and where the wide receivers tend to go and where the value at wide receiver is this year. It's kind of just in that range. I mean, there's other things, there's tackle in that range and and, and a bunch of other things that are entirely possible. But the problem is there's going to be some kind of a narrative of why did it happen? What was the thing? So everybody will come up with their own thing. You know, they, they realize what happens when you don't invest in, well, look at what happened to their offense last year. That's what happens when you don't listen to me and draft a wide receiver in the first round or, God forbid, Aaron Rodgers doesn't come back and then we draft a wide receiver in the first round, it's going to be seen as spiteful. You won't help MVP Aaron Rodgers after all these years, but the first year of Jordan Love's career, and you want to try to go get him help. That's shameful. That's stupid. Because you know what? They'd make the same exact pick if Aaron Rodgers was here. But everybody's got to search for that deeper meaning. Anyway, speaking of narrative, there's another one that's kind of spinning a little bit that I wanted to kind of get out in front of. I had somebody ask me directly, but I'll put it on the podcast because that's what I do. Um, I don't know that we need to play this whole thing, but I'm going to anyways, just because, um, first of all, the, the the context of why he said what he said is important because you got to know the question. What was the question that he's answering? Um, but there's also a kind of a interesting story that I've personally never heard before, which I think is kind of funny. but. Just pay attention to A.J. Hawks' question specifically.
0: Aaron, first of all, I can't wait to watch you play next year. I know you didn't say that. I'm going to say that for just out of hope, and I feel like I can watch you. I can see your your demeanor and your, you know, your, your posture. It looks like, you know what, you're going to be ready to sling that thing. In about two weeks, you could probably still go right now if you wanted. But what do you make of the internet uh, rumors or reports that they may not be in Green Bay?
1: That- so the question specifically is there reports that you might be going somewhere else. But he also comments on, I feel like you can still play, right?
0: Is that up to you? Is that oh. up to the team? Would you ever want to not play uh, in Green Bay? Great question, AJ. I think you, when you say
1: never, things happen that you say. And this this is another thing that's kind of getting spun up a little bit, like everything else. And it here's the other thing that kind of annoys me with the Aaron Rodgers thing, is we always make it seem like... Everything Roger said is so calculated and it's so devious. Like he's trying to like smirk at the camera and be like, mm, never know. This is just an honest answer. He's saying you can never say never because I don't know, dude, crazy stuff can happen. That's the only right answer, but everyone's going to get upset. Cause it's like, you know, what's going to happen and everyone's going to freak out and you're causing this media firestorm. Dude, he's just answering the question. There's going to be a media firestorm no matter what he does. If he wakes up in the morning and sneezes and somebody hears him, there's going to be a firestorm that he's got COVID again. Is he is he to blame for that because of this devious plot that he sneezed right when somebody was walking by or I guess coughed, I don't know. I don't know what the what is the newest evil mutation of the COVID? Is it does it make you sneeze instead of cough or what? I'm not really sure. Anyways, say never to. So
0: when I came back from the combine in 2005, uh, they said, how was it? And I said, ah, man, it was so much fun, except for the 5 a.m. Uh, you know, drug test the first day and, you know, at Cybex test and then sitting at an oh. MRI machine for eight hours you right. know, with only a sandwich and an apple. Come on. I said, but other than that, it was pretty cool, you know. I think all the teams are great, except for Green Bay. That was a really tough interview. You know, they were just kind of grilling me. And But it's all right. I mean, I'm never going to play there anyway. You know, they're drafting 24th.
1: So again, that that was just, just that part. The part that was taken out of context is just his part of his answer there. And of course, a little smirk on his face. But the guy never takes the smirk off his face. That's just how his face looks now. He's always happy, right? Look at me, I'm happy all the time. That's his whole shtick. So every time you take a quote somewhat out of context and take a picture of his face while he says it, and you go, look at that sly smile, he knows. That's not a he knows face. That's a I'm high face. Um but the 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 full context of that is never say never and then he gives an example of why you should never say never as if we need an example it's the oldest adage in the history of the universe we know you never say never. So the whole thing is I've already said I want to be a Green Bay Packer and I want to stay a Green Bay Packer or retire. I don't want the third option. But never say never. That's it. Doesn't need to be blown more out of proportion. But that's not even what I'm talking about.
0: So you be careful. Be careful saying never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think you say never. Um, listen, I came back uh, and, and really wanted to finish my career in Green Bay. Um, in 2019, we, you know, were feeling each other out on offense and, and our defense played pretty damn good. And a lot of people said I was, uh, what did they say, washed, uh, couldn't really play anymore. Washed, yeah. Uh, wasn't the same. And then I won two MVPs in a row. Oh, yeah. Is that good? With, without really doing anything different. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of the same sentiment this year. Um, you know, I have a lot of comments about uh, a lot of that that I'd like to keep to myself or I'll share, you know, off air just because out of respect for the whole process. And just, you know, some things uh, don't need to be said, I think, are more understood uh, implicitly, but um, do I still think I can play? Of course. Of course. Can I play at a high level? Yeah. The highest. I think I can win MVP again. The right situation.
1: So that's freaking everybody out. Oh, what, you know, why are you talking about MVPs? I thought this was about Super Bowls. This is a specific answer to a specific question about his play. So why, why would he talk about Super Bowls right now? First of all, he's already talked about Super Bowls. He's talked about that's the that's his motivating factor in coming back. He specifically said the reason he would come back is if he feels that we can win a Super Bowl. He didn't say, if he would have said, the only reason I'm coming back is if I think I can win an MVP, then you got a case there. But he explicitly said he wouldn't come back unless he felt that the team could win a Super Bowl. So the Super Bowl is the thing. In this instance, he's talking specifically about his own abilities, which have been called into question. A.J. Hawk talked about it. And then he talk, he's talking about it now how people said, hey, back then people said I was washed, which I would disagree with that to some extent. It wasn't in 2019 we said he was washed. It was in 2018 because for the last two to three years, he hadn't really been himself. In other words, injuries mixed in, but it wasn't all just injury. And that includes 2018. That had nothing to do with injury. He looked awful, as did the rest of the offense. But he looked awful. 2019, the offense got better. It was still kind of iffy. But he's kind of spinning that a little bit where it's like, people called me washed in 2019, and then I won two MVPs. Now, that was in 2018. And then in 2019, you got better when Matt LaFleur got here. And the entire offense massively took a jump when Matt LaFleur got here. And then in year two, when you started getting more comfortable in the system, that's when things really started to take off for you Um, in the offense, which, I mean, granted, 2020 is when everybody's offense took off. But our offense took off the most, and you benefited the most from that. 2020 and then 2021 you did it again although again I don't necessarily think he deserved it in 2021 but he was still playing at a high level and then this year obviously fell off but that's his whole thing is hey this, the, we've been here before where the offense didn't look good and then in a couple years I got better now my personal retort to that would be what's going to be the major change he said nothing really got nothing really changed well, you're talking about 2019 to 2020. You're leaving out the whole part where the big jump came from 2018 to 2019 when Matt LaFleur came in and revamped and re- changed the entire offensive system. So it's not true that nothing changed. <laughs> 2019 isn't when you were getting criticized. It was 2018. So, like I said before, if you expect change, you should expect things to change. The the I, I just I can't get on board... Um, with the idea that with nothing changing, he'll get better. It's possible he gets healed up. Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs get all better. And maybe they tweak some things with the offense. I don't know. I kind of feel like he was, I I feel like this is the second time. I don't know, reading between the tea leaves, but I feel like this is the second time he's hinted at there being massive problems with the offense and particularly with Matt LaFleur and the offensive scheme that he doesn't want to talk about. I talked about it once during the press conferences. He made some comments about, I want to keep that to myself, and he did it here. He said, there are certain things that I want to keep to myself out of respect for the process. What process? Well, probably the fact that he has a good chance he's coming back as a Green Bay Packer and doesn't want to throw his coach under the bus, or players, or whatever it is under the bus. But there's something going on that he doesn't want to talk about, and you better believe the second he says he's retired, he's going to come out and spill the beans. Now, whether or not he's going to be correct or not, I don't know. Don't know. But he has his side of the story of what's going on, and he doesn't want to talk about it right now. Um, But anyways, as far as this MVP thing, and this is where it does get annoying, and this is where the people who defend Rodgers get so defensive because there are people that will look for any reason to attack the guy. And I think sometimes it gets a little out of control. And it's just it becomes I don't like Rodgers, and I'm gonna to try to find reasons to back up why I feel what I feel. I'm not saying everybody's doing this, but this feels like one of those things because again, if you just listen to it, what what was what was offensive about that? Nothing. He didn't say anything wrong. He was commenting specifically about his personal ability. He never said MVP is the most important thing. He didn't say I would come back only if I thought I could win an MVP. He didn't say that was my motivation for anything whatsoever. It's simply a commentary on his own personal abilities. And so when asked about his ability, when questioned, when, which is what he's commenting is happening. He's saying people are questioning my ability and I believe I can win an MVP. Now we can agree or disagree with that. And, and again, my biggest concern with that is how? How does that magically happen? You won MVP because of the environment. It was a change in the offense. There's no chance in the history of the universe if we continued with Mike McCarthy that he would be MVP in 2020 and 2021. That is a fiction. That's a joke. Zero chance that happens. And I'll be honest, it it is actually a little, now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, it is a little insulting that he's pretending that Matt LaFleur had nothing to do with it, which kind of feeds into my belief that he is losing respect for Matt LaFleur, which in general... I can't help but kind of roll my eyes because it's like, you know, you you got all these little comments about Mike McCarthy and you didn't like the 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 uh, every you, you complained about it constantly. And when you were with Mike McCarthy, you made comments about how much you respected the Shanahan system, how much you respected what they did, how much you loved their offense. Then Mike leaves and we bring in a guy that spent his entire career under the Shanahan offense, whether that was uh Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Mike Shanahan, whatever you understand this at its core, and that's the guy they brought in, and everything got better. A combination of that and Gudikunz bringing in a bunch of free agents to help things, and to some degree the things that Mike Pettin was able to do, and the comment that I well, there's there's so much about that little thing that's annoying. I'm trying to defend the guy, but that that little pocket of information kind of bothers me. I think the main focus is. People said I was washed and then I won MVP, right? But you didn't win it in 2019 or 2018, right? This is the same thing I said with Devontae. Devontae gets all chippy when he's like, people said I was garbage and then look. Yeah, but you were. People just said what you were. And then when you became something else, we we were happy about what you became. I understand you got a chip on your shoulder and you understand that maybe you get a little jaded towards fans because they only love you for what you're able to do. Well, duh. Packer fans will always revere Devontae Adams more than Jeff Janice. You know why? I sure hope you know why, because I don't feel like explaining it, because it's pretty straightforward. So why do you have an attitude about people saying, I was washed? Dude, you didn't play well for how many years? I mean, the last time you were just a, a freaking force of nature was what, 2014? 2015 was garbage. That was the first time when everybody got a glimpse of, what the heck is wrong with this guy? That was the first time. And that was when you were dating someone and it was like that whole thing with forget the lady's name but oh man it's he's in a relationship he's now he's not playing well do you remember that that's when it started then i think 2016 was maybe a little bit of a bounce back then 17 was you were injured and then 2018 it was like well hopefully when he comes back everything will be better cuz he's not hurt anymore and it was awful and I'm sure the word wash got thrown around a little bit, but it was mostly just a, the, the idea that the dude, he's just, it's, it's time to move on, man. And I'm sorry, that's a completely rational thought. But you're right, you come in, somebody comes in and brings in a quarterback-friendly system where you're able to turn your brain off and just throw to the open guy. And, and in 2019, it seemed like you didn't really want to do that. 2020, it seemed like you embraced it and the offense took off. Now all of a sudden you got a chip on your shoulder about it, probably because the offense isn't going very well. And it feels like he wants to throw Matt LaFleur under the bus, and maybe to some degree that's that's the case. But again, I'm struggling because I watched his play. And you maybe don't like that play, but if somebody's open and you miss them, that's not a scheme problem. That's not a Matt LaFleur problem. If he draws up a third and one play, and I see a guy come wide open, and you either miss him or you don't throw to him or whatever the case is, and then you go to the sideline and throw a a, a hissy fit because you didn't like the play... Well, I'm sorry, but it was the right call. So, I don't know. I, I guess I don't like the... Uh, for, again, first of all, even if you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and nobody helped you, it had nothing to do with Gutekunst bringing in all these people. It had nothing to do with Matt LaFleur completely overhauling the offense. That's fine, but but why are you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps if you didn't need to be pulled up? You only need to be pulled up if you're down. Were you down? Were you playing bad, poorly, or, or what happened there? Because if you were, you shouldn't be all chippy about it. But then, again, secondly, pretending you did it all by yourself. And again, he phrased that on purpose. Because if he says from 2018, it took me two years to get to MVP, suddenly Matt LaFleur is the focus. And Brian Gutekunst is the focus. What they were able to do for the team to help it. But if you say 2019 to 2020, well, nothing changed. Same off head coach, same offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, uh, the same uh, GM, and and this was a year after he did his big, you know, infusion of of players. He still brought in some pieces, but the big infusion came in 2019. So you look from 2019 to 2020, yeah, not much changed. I don't know that part. As I sit here, kind of uh, is weird to me. But commenting on MVP, the guy wants to win a Super Bowl. There's no doubt about it. Whether or not I buy his version of the story of of you know. Every time things go wrong, it's not his fault, and every time things go right, it's all him just just figuring it out and making magic happen. Maybe, but I don't see it that way that That doesn't make the most sense to me. but in terms of of making things up that he's you know taking things out of context, that he wants mVPs and not super Bowls, I don't really buy that, especially since he's explicitly said he wants to win a Super Bowl, and that would be the driving factor in him coming back and i was I was about to be done with it, but then I see somebody posted this and this this i'm i'm coming to the conclusion that good morning football might be the dumbest show i mean there's there's a bunch of espn stuff but good morning football is just stupid it really is um i'm just going to play this it's only a minute long again entirely out of context and 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 it's not just that one person has a stupid opinion it's the it's everybody around the table going hmm, yeah wow mm, it's so deep it's so profound yeah uh uh did you even listen to the whole thing? Did you listen to it? If you did, then you're lying. And if you didn't, you're being dishonest and lazy.
2: One of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen play live in person and on TV. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, if he pulled his wallet out right now, I would say bad MFR on it. Right <laughs> um, I, I think the thing that I, I just, I have a, I wince when I hear that interview is, yeah, I think I can come back and win an MVP. No. I want to win a Lombardi. Like, yeah. Like, that's the thing that I win. at is, ugh, like, like, Aaron Rodgers, I mean, he's going to go down as one of the best quarterbacks who have ever played this game. He has made Packers fans forget about Brett Favre respectfully, but when you look at what he's done, it's unbelievable. This last season was an anomaly to me. Think about this. Aaron Rodgers did not throw for 300 yards one time this entire season. Not once. That's pretty remarkable when you think about what he has done throughout his career. But to me, I, I think that's a missed opportunity. MVPs are great. That's awesome. But I've never heard a quarterback, a Hall of Fame quarterback, talk about, ah, I really love to win an MVP. No, it's all about the... It's
1: the- not what he said. He didn't say, man, I'd really love to win an MVP. It's not what he said. Trophy. The team.
2: Mm-hmm. The Lombardi. You played for the Packers. The Lombardi's name is on that trophy. It's title town. It's not MVP mm. town.
1: Again, that's, that's just stupidity. He's said explicitly that he would like to win a Super Bowl. It is the driving factor in him coming back. He mentioned the MVP specifically to comment on his ability and what he's able to do going forward. It, does, it wouldn't make any sense to say, I think I still got it. In fact, I think we can still win a Super Bowl. Why? Because that's a team effort. That's not a quarterback effort it doesn't make any sense. It, it's not as direct of a commentary on his ability. When asked about his ability, he says, I believe I can still be the best player in the entire league. Anyways, point landed. Why don't we go ahead and take a break here, we'll come back and uh, look at some uh, offseason, specifically NFL draft stuff. Uh, I'm not going to go super over the top in terms of, you know, later round things, but let's try to hone in a little bit closer on some potential first round options. Once we kind of have that narrowed down, we'll kind of broaden from there. As always, please remember patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. If you'd like to support the podcast directly, it would be greatly appreciated and you can do so for as little as a dollar a month. Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. Also, uh, please consider giving to Fertile Ground Ranch Discipleship Ministry. You can find more information about what they do at fertilegroundranch.org. We'll take a break. We'll be right back.
3: all right, so let's take a little pokey
1: at um, the NFL draft a little bit, a little bit differently, though, because we kind of dove headfirst into the into the kiddie pool. Um, let's back up a tad. So we've heard a couple names already, right? We've heard um, Michael Mayer. We know about Smith, uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba and uh, Jordan Addison, et cetera, et cetera, which, by the way, those are the three top most mocked, players to the Packers right now. The most is actually Michael Mayer, which is surprising to me. Um, it's actually somewhat refreshing, although it's a probably, I don't want to say dumber, but from the standpoint of, of draft value and, and value to the team and all that stuff, a wide receiver does make more sense than tight end. But just the fact that we could use tight, wide receiver help, no question. The fact that the, well, the, the, nobody explicitly said it, but it sure felt like the the Rodgers and LaFleur pointed to needing wide receiver help. Granted, they did say that, you know, those players could be on the team such as Christian Watson, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but ju- just the fact that it's refreshing and new, like they should get a tight end. Like, yeah, you're right. We should get anything other than a wide receiver. Thank you, NFL Draft Media, for not saying the same thing for the 10th year in a row. Even though it's kind of the same, we want a big receiver. Uh I don't know. It's just kind of nice to see something not wide receiver being mocked at the Packers 24-7. And I do think it'll be a little bit more versatile. I think you're going to see a lot of offensive tackle, tight end, wide receiver. Might even be a little bit of running back, probably not a ton, but um, Bijan might be in the mix. There's some edge rushers, defensive linemen, safety. So I I have a feeling there's going to be a good amount of variety, uh, which is going to be nice. But here's what I want to do. I want to look at the top three guys and just really zoom in a little bit. Not sure if that'll take the whole time, but um, I've kind of just barely talked about them. In fact, Jordan Addison, I haven't really talked about at all, in terms of my opinion, because I don't even know really my opinion on Jordan Addison. I, I think I like him, but it wasn't one of those things where you watch him, you know, two, three games of him, and you're like, dude, this guy's a freak. It was just kind of, I like him, and Jigba is very similar to um, Brian Branch, even though what I've said is kind of negative, but my my... Real opinion of Brian Branch is I think he's good, I just don't see it, and I want to be sold on it. And that's kind of where I'm at with Njigba. A lot of people look at Njigba, um, including some very smart draft folks on this very network, and um, have had a lot of high praise for him. And if you can sell me on him being sort of a next generation Randall Cobb that can come in and be that number three, that can be sort of that. Slot guy when you got three wide receivers, but it could also be in rotation on the boundary. So you could see some Dobbs and Njigba. You could see some Watson and Njigba, and then obviously Dobbs and Watson. And then your three wide would be Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, Jackson Smith, and Enjigba in the slot. Um, I'm just not all the way there, sold on it, but I'm working on it because my my goal through this draft process, and I think this was similar to last year, isn't really to form. It's it's less about trying to get the exact right opinion. I'm going to focus on the draft board kind of being correct. For me, though, I want to be sold on as many people as possible because I want to enjoy this. I want to have so many guys that it's like, this guy's a freak. I love this guy. Because usually what happens during the draft is there's two guys I like. We're not going to draft those two, and I'm going to sit here with my arms folded going, I don't know, maybe they'll be fine, especially in the first couple rounds because I watched them and didn't like them. I'm just going to be mad. Which is what, honestly, most fans do, and and whether that's because they just read mock drafts and, and they're told that these two wide receivers would be great, and they've been told that for months, and we don't draft those two wide receivers, one of whom is available, the other one we could have draft, uh, traded up for, it's just the end of the world, you bunch of idiots. Others, they form their own opinions, but it's still the same thing. I've got two, three, four guys I like, and I really want it, and no, I want to be sold on everybody. And I know that's not going to happen. I'm... I'm really having a hard time coming around to any of these quarterbacks i'm pretty much all the way out on anthony richardson um although i if we drafted him it's not going to be hard to talk myself into it because he's such an athletic freak um you just kind of hope for that throwing thing to kind of develop but aside from that i don't think i'm out on anybody i'm not in on anybody (laughs) i saw i think it was uh i think it was the guys over at pff they kind of ranked the last five draft classes And he said that this draft class was not great, and the only draft class he saw as far as like first-round talent or whatever that was worse was 2019. So it's not a super dominant class, and I'll I'll be completely honest. At this point, I'm glad we're not at the top. I mean, I shouldn't say I'm glad we're not at the top, but if if you had to pick one year to have a top-five pick, this probably isn't the year. I don't really like Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, Will Levis. Will Anderson is not, in my opinion on the same tier as a lot of the other guys that have come. He's not a Bosa. I, I I don't think. I could be wrong. I just don't see him as that kind of a guy. Same with Miles Murphy and, you know, pretty much everybody on this list. Will Anderson would be maybe like the fifth pick, but everybody else is sort of more of a six to ten or later. Just, just based on my current feelings on them. There's nobody that's like Feeling like a can't miss dominant prospect. Will Anderson's kind of small. Uh, 243 pounds, way too. I mean, he had an 83 grade, which is fine, but there's such a stark difference between his good games and his bad games. He's got one, two, three, four, five, six really good games, but strangely, they're all between 80 and 89. He doesn't have a single 90, he doesn't have a single 70. 80 and 89. And then from his Texas A&M game with an 80.1, it drops down to a 69.8. And he's got one, two, three, four, five games in the 60s and two in the 50s. So it's just kind of weird why there's such a either on or off. It's a high floor, but 243 pounds, smaller guy. I mean, the the numbers are there. The numbers are always going to be there with guys that people really like. It's a big program and a guy with a bunch of sacks. Everyone's going to freak out. And the pressures, too. The pressures are phenomenal. 17-ish percent. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, um, point is, though, I'm I'm very much excited about getting excited about these guys. But why don't we start with the most mocked player to Mr. Michael Mayer, most mocked player to the Packers, Mr. Michael Mayer. Um, for example, the most recent mock draft done by Mr. Luke Easterling of DraftWire had the Packers taking Michael Mayer. That mock, dropped um well two days ago from you one day ago for me you had um 33rd team take michael mayer for the packers at 15 san diego tribune kyle stackpole over at cbs ryan wilson at cbs sports illustrated i'm listing them because we're going to go through them and in addition to looking into the individual players and whatnot Vinny Iyer at sporting news and we'll just end it with Gridiron Heroics' Matthew Brown. And this is within the last week. All of these mock drafts have been within the last week, all of them having Ma- uh, Michael Mayer to the Green Bay Packers. That's, that's a pretty large sample size of people looking at it saying it makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to go through and look at what people are saying, not only about the Packers, but about uh, Michael Mayer, just to see if what we're seeing in terms of why people think he's a good fit and what we're seeing in terms of reality kind of matches up so first of all and this is a a very good point and i'm guessing a theme that we're going to see throughout um and again we'll look at this more in depth but uh gridiron heroics this is uh matthew brown wrote this article or mock draft or whatever he has the packers taking michael Mayer. he says it doesn't matter who's playing quarterback next year the packers need to upgrade the tight end position their red zone struggles often happen because they don't have the clear mismatch target once they get close to the end zone Mayer is the perfect prospect for the Packers. He can also line up at wide receivers, so he can help in that regard as well. Having to cover Romeo Dobbs, Christian Watson, and Michael Mayer would be a task for any defense. Now, I don't know about you, and this is part of the reason why I love this time of year. I love the draft. I love all this stuff, and this is exactly what I want to happen. Reading those words got me excited. It, it gave me a couple chills. Again, I'm not 100% sure where we're going to be at with Dobbs and Christian Watson, um, or what Michael Mayer will be, but again, just sort of the prospect of having that—it's um—it's pretty exciting. So I want to first look at the the whole red zone thing. So clearly, this was a p- issue for the Packers, and I think I, I think very often you could probably point to uh, these losses coming down to a couple points that had many scoring opportunities. If you look at red zone opportunities, scoring um, percentages in the red zone, the Packers are at 51.85%. That puts them 23rd. So they're not dead last in the league, but when you have, you know, again, go through the list, you got MVP Aaron Rodgers, you got uh, Aaron Jones, who's been phenomenal running the ball in the goal line. You've got this hammer, AJ Dillon, you've got a really high quality offensive line, Christian Watson is a massive target with a ton of speed. That's a mismatch nightmare. We just couldn't quite get it done better than 23rd. For reference, the highest was 73.3%, and that was Dallas. Getting it it done in the red zone um, was a pretty serious struggle. At home, it went up to 61%. On the road, it was 42.86%. And honestly, it's not even all that much worse than last year. Last year we ranked, I don't know, that doesn't really resort it, but roughly the same, let's call it like 17th or something. Somewhere around the middle, maybe a little bit worse, 17, 18, 19, 57.53%. So the red zone is becoming a problem. Now, not surprisingly, take a wild guess in 2020, when we had legitimate MVP Aaron Rodgers, we had number one offense by a mile where we ranked in the red zone. Number one, 76.81%, better than any team this year. And I'll tell you what, it's it's not a bad matchup. If you look at it, do you know who had the most red zone targets inside the 20 yard line? Michael Mayer. And it's by a pretty hefty margin. Uh second place is Terrace Ferguson out of Oregon had 17. Michael Mayer was twenty-one. Um, completion percentage, he is third highest among tight ends. If you look at yards per route run, which is, you know, we're in a confined space, but still, we're looking for a guy in the red zone that's going to produce yardage every time he's within the red zone. Michael Mayer's number one, 4.4 yards per route run inside the 20. First down percentage, which is what percentage of the time when you catch it, did you convert a first down, which is inside the 20. Again, confined space. He was fifth, 86.7% of the time he's converting first downs inside the 20. So even, you know, a lot of these depth things and first down things, they don't even really translate as well. Uh, he was not number one in terms of touchdowns in the red zone. That would be Payne Durham out of Purdue. Number two is Tanner Koziol out of Ball State. Michael Mayer is tied for number third with Jamal Turner out of Toledo, though. Six touchdowns inside um, when inside the red zone. He's the only player with a minimum of 10 targets inside of the 10-yard line in all of college football. And just for fun because I've never really looked at it. Yards per route run, and again, pretty good metric. Um, Just looking at pretty much all tight ends with a minimum of 50 targets, which is there's only 25 of them, but still second highest yards per route run in all of college football behind only Brock Bowers of Georgia. He's also number one in points earned per route run. Um, Number one in points earned, which makes sense. Number one in points above average. Number one in points above average per route. The only thing that's interesting, and I don't really know how to read this, but I'll say it in case you have some thoughts on it, but uh, boom or bust, Michael Mayer. He was fifth highest in boom percentage, sixth highest in bust percentage. And I believe that's when the EPA is uh, at one point or higher on a play. That's a boom. If it's at negative one or lower, that's a bust. So I don't know. But, um, yeah, he's he's, he's a... uh, He's a fun target in the red zone, that's for sure. And again, that's that's kind of a thought that hadn't necessarily occurred to me, which it should have, because with a lot of these mock drafts, what I like to do for a lot of teams is say, what is an area that they legitimately struggled in? I mean, one one thing to do is just go to PFF, look at their roster and say, where do they have a deficiency in terms of a player? But the other is to look at it and say, where are we struggling? Right? If you're 32nd in yards per attempt rushing, you might have a really bad safety that you can fill. But another place to look would be we are dead last in this area. How do we get better in it? Do we need a running back? Should we work on the offensive line, etc.? cetera? When you look at the Packers and say that they really struggle in the red zone, aside from, you know, between the 20s and all that stuff, how, how much a guy like Michael Mayer would help if you talk about moving on to a younger quarterback, whether that be this year, next year, whatever, getting that relief valve tight end. It makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that. Here is what Vinnie Iyer of Sporting News had to say about the Green Bay Packers taking Michael Mayer tight end at pick 15. Mayer is a matchup nightmare, creating receiver, uh, matchup, whatever, at his position and can fit in nicely with fellow big play youngster Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs at wideout. Robert Tunyon is a pending free agent, and the Packers could use a special kind of athletic target to help Aaron Rodgers stretch the middle of the field to replace Randall Cobb. So he focused mostly on the physical. I don't have a lot to go on there. Um, for the record, Michael Mayer projection: six foot four, two hundred and sixty-five pounds, running a four-six-five. If you just look at the forty time, it's not necessarily all that impressive. But six-four-two-sixty-five is a big dude. I mean, he really is. If you look at our tight ends, um, Tyler Davis is six foot four, but he is two hundred and fifty-two pounds. He's the closest thing to it, and he's he's uh, thirteen pounds shy. If you look at Josiah DeGuara. He's six foot two, 238 pounds. If you look at uh, Robert Tunyon, he's six foot five, so he's taller, but he's 240. So we're talking 25 pounds lighter. Um, and by the way, Mercedes Lewis, who in my mind is just 10 times bigger than Michael Mayer, six foot six, 267 pounds. He is two inches taller, but they're the same size. Think about that. Mercedes is—he—he's built like Mercedes Lewis. Not—not not quite as tall, but the fact that he's shorter and—and and built to that size, and he's not a fat dude. He's—he's he's pretty jacked. He is two hundred and sixty-five pounds. So when you talk about four-six-five and say that's not that impressive, you know, you're talking four-fives for really fast tight ends, right? There are really fast tight ends, probably clocking in the four-fours, but they're built like jacked wide receivers. Four-six-five at this size, Mercedes Lewis ran a four-eight. So we're talking about a guy that's closer in speed to Robert Tunyon, but is built like Mercedes Lewis. If you look at the size, first of all, 6'4", 265 as a minimum, and look at the guys that have been drafted. Only one in the entire draft class in 2021 fit that bill. None of them did in 2022. Which sounds crazy because it's like, I know there were monsters. Jelani Woods was a freak. Jelani Woods is 258. (laughs) Jelani Woods. That guy was six foot seven. And there were two guys at 6'8. Austin Allen is 6'8, 253 and runs a 4'83. So, I mean, Jelani Woods would be the closest, honestly, to this. The only difference is he was somehow slightly faster, but not quite as big in terms of weight, but like three inches taller is what Jelani Woods was. But nobody was 265 pounds in the entire class, including two 6'8 guys Two six foot seven guys, three six foot six guys, and like seven six foot five guys. He is six foot four, two hundred and sixty five pounds. I cannot stress to you how crazy two sixty five is. So again, nobody in twenty twenty. The only guy out of TCU last year, uh, Artavius Lynn, who wasn't even drafted, six four two seventy one, went undrafted. You have to go all the way back to twenty nineteen to find anything similar, where you find six foot eight. 265-pound Zach Gentry. He ran a 4.9 and went in the fifth round. That was the only one in the entire class. The only one in 2018, Jordan Thomas, 6'5", 265, ran a 4.74. Uh, Adam Shaheen, you might remember. He spent time with the Bears or whatever. That was 2017. There were two in 2017. 6'6", six, six, 278, ran a 4.79. Michael Roberts, 6'4", four, 270, 486. So the size-speed combo that he has on top of... You know, like I've said, I've only seen snippets, but the body control, the great hands, you can kind of see where the physical presence of it. Although, when I first looked at it and thought, okay, 6'4, uh, 265, that's whatever. 4'6'5 is not that fast. I mean, Musgrave is supposed to be four five-one. You know, I mean, there's 4'5 guys all over the place. I don't know why that would be anything special because he's 265 pounds. That's why. Um, so, you know, Noah Grindorf. Out of uh, NDSU is another one, six foot six, two sixty eight, a freak of a human being. A little slower at four seven one, but that's another just massive human being. So as exciting as um, it is to look at Darnell Washington, and by the way, Darnell Washington is see, and this this is what's crazy because you look at Michael Mayer and say everything Michael Mayer is Darnell Washington is either is also everything I just said about Michael Mayer is true in terms of how much of a freak he is. Supposedly, Darnell Washington is three inches taller, five pounds heavier, and runs slightly faster. So, good lord, Darnell Washington is a freak among freaks. I just spent all this time telling you how freaky Michael Mayer is and and Washington. That that combine is going to be crazy, because if, you know, if Washington ends up running a 4.75, it's like, okay, well, that was stupid. Which would be, I mean, even at that, it's like, okay, that's completely acceptable at his size. But if he can actually run a four six five, or in this case, what they have him projected as a four six three, are you freaking kidding me? But anyways, back to Michael Mayer. <laughs> and the, the the I think the other thing with Mayer is he's he's kind of built at six foot four. He has that non giraffish quality like Darnell Washington has, where it's kind of hard to move your body left and right. Michael Mayer is much more fluid. So there's that. If we look over at. Um, Sports Illustrated, the NFL Draft Bible, which is its own website, but they did a mock draft apparently for Sports Illustrated. I don't know. Here's what they had to say about their pick, Michael Mayer at 15 to the Packers. A rare blend of size, athleticism, toughness, and pure natural talent, Mayer is the definition of a prototype at the tight end position. Tough end to break tackles after the catch and elusive enough to make defenders miss in the open field. And I think that's the real combination. At his size and and everything else, he he has the 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 physicality aspect of it. He's gonna be a good blocker, I believe. He's got all these different attributes, but can he actually get it done as a receiver? If he can prove that aspect of it in terms of his route running, it's it's a very rare situation with him. Here's what Ryan Wilson of CBS had to say about his mock of Michael Mayer to the Packers. Mayer is more Gronk than Kelsey, but that's not a bad thing. And in Green Bay, the team will need to re-up Robert Tunyon or he's headed to free agency. And even if he returns, Mayer is a solid blocker and a reliable downfield target, which is good news for Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, or whoever the quarterback is behind door number three. And I think that kind of makes sense when you watch him play. It doesn't feel like a Travis Kelsey. It does kind of feel like a Gronk. Because Gronk was a little bit on the clumsy side. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It's just You know, you can just tell when he's running, it doesn't look like a wide receiver running because he's freaking massive. By the way, it is a pretty solid comp to Gronk. Gronk was two inches taller, but um, 267, 268 pounds ran a 4.68. I mean, in terms of the measurables, built very similarly. Here is what the San Diego Union Tribune had to say, um, taking Michael Mayer. The further we get outside of the top 10, the harder it'll be to pass on Mayer. The Irish pipeline at tight end to the NFL continues to flourish. Mayer isn't as explosive as Kyle Pitts, but his receiving acumen, six foot four, two 265 pounds, and toughness put him just a tick below Pitts as a prospect. Both Robert Tunyon and Mercedes Lewis will be free agents. Not really sure if, I'm guessing he wasn't saying Kyle Pitts went to Notre Dame, but another interesting thought to look at. Notre Dame tight ends. First of all, Cole Kmet for the Chicago Bears, was the top tight end that got picked in that uh, draft class, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody might have went first, but I don't think so. Um, after that, you had uh, Tommy Tremble, who went in the third round to the Carolina Panthers last year. 2019, so 2021, Tommy Tremble. 2020, Cole Komet. 2019, Alizé Mack, who went in the seventh round. Um, 2018, Durham Smythe, went in the fourth round of the Miami Dolphins. So, first of all, Cole Komet is kind of turning a corner for the Bears. And my reservations about Cole Komet, because I, I feel like when I'm watching Cole Komet, I'm just watching uh, Michael Mayer, which makes sense because Cole Komet is 6'6", six six, 262, ran a 4'7", which on every account is similar, two inches taller, maybe slightly slower and a little bit lighter, but basically the same guy, same build. It's interestingly uh, interesting enough to look at Cole Komet and say he's a, he's a better upgraded version of Komet. Now, that might scare you away because Komet isn't all that great, but again, he's starting to get a little bit more involved. The biggest thing is the touchdowns. He went two years with only two touchdowns. Last year, he had zero. This year, seven. So he's, he's flirting with five, 600 yards and, and a bunch of touchdowns. And remember, um, this is a team that really struggles to throw the ball. Now, some of that's on Komet, granted. But you also have to understand, Michael Mayer right now, just just speaking broadly, we can go through every single stat, but we're not going to. Michael Mayer has a 92 overall grade, I believe, via PFF. Cole Komet, in his final year at Notre Dame, had a 69, which was his highest in his three years at Notre Dame. So these are very different. Although they're built the same, these are very different guys. It's sort of, Cole Komet is, Michael Mayer is what, the Bears hoped Cole Komet could become when they drafted him, I think. They looked at the size of the speed, the, you know, 6'6", 260, and said, man, this guy could really be something. That's what Michael Mayer is today, I think. Now, again, there's still the question of can it translate into the NFL. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about he's doing it right now at a very high level in college, what Cole Komet didn't necessarily do. And honestly, the, the touchdown thing was similar. He went two years at Notre Dame with zero touchdowns, and then he got six in year three. So he had six in three years. Michael Mayer has nine this year. He had seven the year before. And he's gone from a 71 to an 80 to a 92.5, his PFF grade. So it's just, it's just getting better with time, man. He just continues to get better and better and better. He's 21 and a half years old. He's young. He's built like a freaking brick house. He's one of the rare tight ends that has that ability to be your uh, Mercedes Lewis and your um, Robert Tunyon which is important, and probably could be, honestly, your uh, Josiah DeGuara. I don't know why you couldn't line him up at H-back and have him run across a formation and crack somebody's skull open and then occasionally slip out for a pass. And I think that right there is a big selling point. And you could say the same thing about uh, Washington out of Georgia. But that's one of the big selling points about this is we have to replace three tight, well, two tight ends, you know, presumably. And so even if Michael Mayer isn't Travis Kelsey, if we can just replace two of these guys with a rookie Michael Mayer who's able to do it at a higher level, maybe not quite blocking as well as Mercedes Lewis, but blocking at a high level, a better receiver than Mercedes, um, which is important because you're talking about an inline receiver. Mercedes Lewis at, you know, inline was a great blocker, but an inline receiver, not necessarily. He's going to be an inline receiver, a slot receiver, an H-back. Blocking it all, re- receiving it all. You could even split him out wide and let him just be a wide receiver, and he can be out there blocking. He can out there go out there and run routes. So, on one hand, you look at it and say, eh, not really worth it for a tight end. But again, you to to, to serve all these different roles, if you believe he can do it, there's a lot of value in, inherent in that. Uh, Mr. Stackpole over at CBS had this to say about Michael Mayer at 15. Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, doesn't matter. Whoever is under center for Green Bay in 2023 would benefit from Michael Mayer's blocking prowess, reliable hands, and ability to get open in the biggest of moments. He'd be an immediate upgrade over impending free agent Robert Tunyon. Which is another thing, if you you think about first downs, a reliable target to move the sticks. How many times did we get stuck? You know, the second most targets on third and fourth down, Michael Mayer at 34. 35 was the most, Sam Laporta out of Iowa. If you look at third and fourth and 10 or less, in other words, we're not talking about, you know, third and 17. He's number one with 33 targets. He caught 92.3% of on-target catches, 81.3% first down rate. team. they actually put a little handy-dandy... video together for this, but let me read it first and then we'll play a little bit of the video. Green Bay Packers take Michael Mayer. GM Brian Gudicuns has another weapon for Aaron Rodgers or Jordan Love. What do you mean another weapon? I thought he's never done that ever in his life. Mayer is a true two-way tight end who offers Coach Matt LaFleur a lot of versatility in Green Bay's offense. Here's what the video had to say.
3: And with this new mock draft up at the 33rd team right now I am looking at pick number 15, where the Green Bay Packers get a versatile weapon in Notre Dame tight end Michael Mayer. Now, aside from being a proven blocker, which would bode well for Green Bay's run game, Mayer is a do-it-all receiver with consistent hands. So how does that help the Packers, and more importantly, your fantasy team? Well, fantasy-relevant tight ends rely generally on two things, volume or touchdowns. The volume could be there in Green Bay, especially with receiver Alan Lazard and tight end Robert Tunyon both on expiring deals. As for those touchdowns, well, the Packers scored on just 52% of their red zone trips this past season, the lowest rate of the Matt LaFleur era. Mayer can come in and be the main target for Aaron Rodgers or Jordan Love in the red zone and in the middle of the field. If Mayer becomes a Packer like our experts already predict, he would be a sneaky good late-round pick in fantasy leagues.
1: So you could also help your fantasy team. Um, since we already looked at touchdowns, I thought the other thing that would be interesting to discuss would be just pure volume. Because if we assume Christian Watson is probably not going to be a volume guy, although for a speed-deep threat, he has already proven to be somewhat of a high-volume guy in terms of you know lots of receptions, lots of targets. But the assumption is Christian Watson is going to be more of the four or five target deep threat guy. Romeo Dobbs will be more of the high target, high reception, high volume guy. But I don't know that Michael Mayer wouldn't also be in heavy contention for being that guy. Not that it has to be every single week, but I think he could end up being that guy for a team like the Packers. that doesn't really have that. Romeo Dobbs proved that he could be that guy a couple times. and Maybe he gets back into form, but... um, I think it would make a lot of sense for a big body tight end, especially in a Matt LaFleur type of scheme type of system that seems to desperately want. And by the way, Aaron Rodgers has always desperately wanted really good tight ends. He's never really had one. In my opinion, he never has had a really good tight end. It's debatable, but I would, that's my position. Every quarterback would love a big body target that you can just throw it up to. Anyways, uh, that's, that is that. Um, Again, just trying to get everybody jacked up about Michael Mayer. I think there is a lot to love about it. I understand the positional concerns and all that kind of stuff. The only other thing I would say is that it's kind of as many tight ends as have come out that have been a disappointment. The only tight end that I can see in recent history that as far as PFF grade goes is kind of in the same realm would be Kyle Pitts. Now, Kyle Pitts is, is heads and tails above. He had a 96 PFF grade, which is stupid. And there have been other relatively high-graded guys. Michael Mayer is the highest-graded right now. But if you also take into account the program, so last year there were a bunch of high, uh, highly-graded players. But Trey McBride out of Colorado State and Isaiah Likely out of Coastal Carolina, there's nothing wrong with these guys. They might end up being great players, I don't know. But these are small schools. And, and small school players are generally going to have inflated, uh, inflated grades because they're going up against lesser competition. Then there was also Brock Bowers last year. Now, Brock Bowers is still in college. I believe he's maybe coming out this year. He also has a 90 grade, so it went down a little bit. Michael Mayer surpassed him. But it's just rare to have a big program, high-scoring title. 2019, the only one was Harrison Bryant out of FAU with a 92.5. No other 90s. TJ Hawkinson, by the way, Iowa. 90.0. 90.0. So that would be a good example of a guy that kind of is in that range. TJ Hawkinson. And he's slightly lower. And by the way, Hawkinson ran a four seven, which is uh projected to be a little bit slower. And on top of that, he's 244 pounds, so he's 20 pounds lighter and not as fast. And didn't grade out quite as high. And he went number eight overall. And I, I think it's for that reason that uh is probably going to make it at least close to where we are. I think everybody's gun shy. They're like, dude, people keep taking these tight ends at eight and everything. It doesn't ever pan out. Kyle Pitts kind of panned out, although this year I think his production went down. I'm sure fantasy football people are super ticked off about that. But I think the talent is obviously there. I don't know why he fell off in year two. I would assume it's more of a team thing. It's it's hard to imagine he doesn't have the talent but blew up as a rookie. So it's not a guarantee. I'm just saying it, it's it's worth noting that a lot of these names that we throw around um, in terms of examples that first round tight ends don't really pan out, they're not really on the same level. So for example, 2015, George Kittle was the highest graded tight end out of Iowa, had a 93.8 grade. Then you had David Morgan at UTSA, which is a small school. Then you have Arkansas's Hunter Henry at three, another really, really good tight end. He had a 92.4, which is almost identical to what um, Michael Mayer's grade is. Let, let, Let me put it this way. I went all the way back as far as PFF will go. We say that tight end is kind of a crapshoot. If you look at what's called the, um, not just FBS, but if we break it down into the Power 5, top 65 teams or whatever in college football, everybody that has had Michael Mayer's grade or higher, 92 PFF grade or higher since, I think, 2014-15, Michael Mayer and Brock Bowers, who are... Not in the NFL yet. The only other three, Kyle Pitts, George Kittle, and Hunter Henry. Is it a crapshoot? Sure. But maybe we're just drafting bad tight ends early. Just a thought. If we look at all the first-round picks, and there have not been very many. um, Basically, I'm looking at since 2000, I think nine have been taken. David Njoku's PFF grade. First of all, he was in college two years. uh, Basically, one and a half years. And his PFF grade was a seventy six. Hurst, I think, is a pretty good tight end, but he's was old when he got drafted. Um, Evan Ingram, he had an eighty two grade out of Mississippi, which is not terrible, but it's certainly not elite first round caliber player. Eifert was a very good player; he just got injured. Zach Ertz, well, that's a second round pick, but he was solid. Uh, Noah Fant is another big one. First round bust. Fant had a seventy seven grade. OJ Howard out of Alabama seventy eight. Ebron, I don't know because it doesn't go back quite that far. That's at 2014. Can't look it up. Again, we already went over Hawkinson and Kyle Pitts, as far as I can tell, is a good tight end. So there's not as many misses. Kyle Pitts is solid. Hawkinson is okay, but again, was not even super elite in college. Ebron, I can't see. O.J. Howard was good, not great in college. Noah Fant was average. Tyler Eifert was a great tight end, just had injury issues. Evan Ingram was mediocre in college, or, or good, I guess. Hayden Hurst, again, I think he was a decent tight end, at least for a couple years, but even still, 64 PFF grade, clearly not the greatest in the world on top of being, you know, old. And Joku was graded out as good, not great. And then you go through the second-round pick, Zach Ertz, solid tight end. Hunter Henry, really good tight end and fit the prototype of being highly graded PFF and whatnot. Mike Kosicki had a 75 grade. So, I mean it just it just down the line. Again, Cole Komet graded out is is average. So a lot of these are are solid tight ends. But also there have been very few actually really dominant elite tight ends. And of the ones that have, as far as I can tell, they've all been pretty solid. All of the three. <laughs> and by the way, for those that don't remember or think very highly of Hunter Henry, remember he was one of the top tight ends in the NFL for quite some time until he got injured in twenty eighteen. He was um In 2016 and 2017 with San Diego, he was elite, elite. Then he got injured in 2018, 2019 through 2021, he was good. And then this year, he just completely fell off a cliff. Um, So kind of a tragic tale with Hunter Henry, which is probably true of a lot of tight ends. But still, very, very, very good tight end. It's worth a look. That's all I'm saying. All right, I'm out of here. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.